You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Rain pattered over the grass as the girl traversed the empty field, her cleats suctioning in and out of the mud. She did not hurry. The man, she knew, would wait for her. Every afternoon, the man parked across the street from the cemetery where she and her friends escaped after lunch to smoke cigarettes. At first, they thought he was an undercover cop or a truant officer, someone hired by their headmaster, Miss Pym, to keep tabs on their forbidden roaming during school hours. But the man's car, a 1975 gray Mercedes, rendered this suspicion unlikely. He'd since been downgraded to probable pervert and treated by the girls as their mascot, rallying proof of their irresistibility. The girl made sure to pause each day in his line of vision to adjust her knee sock or swing her semmering issue skirt around so that the rear knife pleat snapped back and forth like a school of fish when she walked. She had noticed that as the weeks of fall progressed, as the trees became more and more naked, and the humid tropical haze over the cemetery thinned to an astringent veneer, the man stopped watching in his non-watching way the anonymous passing of girls and focused on one girl in particular. This should have been thrill enough. The girl entered the new field house. She meandered down the empty halls with their long fluorescent tube lighting and glassed-in trophy cases. She pushed through the swinging olive green door into the olive green locker room with the olive green tiles and the pervasive smell of pink hand soap. She stood in front of the mirror. She applied some lip balm, but otherwise did nothing to improve her appearance. She was wet, she was bedraggled, and like all teenagers after a half-hearted day of French, trigonometry, study hall, drama, field hockey, she was in desperate need of a ride and a greasy meal, two very innocent things to want, even from a stranger. Heidi Julevitz is the author of The Effect of Living Backwards, The Mineral Palace, and a collaboration with photographer Jenny Gage, Hotel Andromeda. She is a founding editor of The Believer, a magazine published by McSweeney's Press. Her new novel is The Uses of Enchantment. Welcome to the program, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. Heidi, this is a delightful novel. Give us the setup. It's pretty easy. The setup is is pretty easy. It's essentially a 16-year-old girl who engineers her own abduction. And when she comes back, she suddenly finds herself being pressured from various sources, her parents, her therapists, etc., to kind of come up with a story for what happened to her while she was gone. And her therapist comes up with one sort of interpretation. Her mother is very wedded to another interpretation. Um, yet another therapist gets involved and has her interpretation. And essentially, I mean, the irony of the situation is she's somebody who, you know, a lot of people go to therapy kind of find out about themselves by digging up their own past. And she is given so many pasts that as an adult, she essentially is without an identity and is kind of unknowable because she has all of these sort of competing stories of what may or may not have happened to her when she disappeared. One of the things about this book, the way it's packaged, and even to a certain extent the way you describe it, make it sound as if it's a fairly serious and thoughtful book, and it is, but 
it really struck me. It's very funny. And I wanted to talk about the humor in this book, which is really enjoyable. (laughs) I'm glad you think it's funny. (laughs) I laughed out loud through the whole thing. Oh, well, that's so nice to hear. I definitely go back and forth. The first book I wrote, The Mineral Palace, was decidedly not funny. And my second book, The Effect of Living Backwards, was, was maybe too slapsticky or it was very it was very slapsticky it very much forefronted humor and with this book I wanted to try to find a way to have things be a little spooky have those kind of like a haunted feeling to certain sections but then also have other ones just be be very sort of um, punchy and and um, funny well one of the things just to begin with when you name a character Mary Veal yes (laughs) Hopefully that's a tip-off, right? <laughs> this, is, this is a tip-off that we're, everything's not serious. But it's also, that name in itself is also really spooky and kind of creepy. Yeah. I, I mean, I found it's funny because, I mean, after all was said and done, and I swear I didn't do this on purpose, um, but such is the uh, such is the magic of the subconscious, right? That her name, you know, everyone, I've, I've had all these interviewers ask me, oh, Mary Veal, was she supposed to be like the sacrificial calf who will never reach adulthood, you know? <laughs> And actually, I was only thinking there's actually a writer who I don't even know who I went to um, I went to um, graduate school with, and her name is Charlotte Bacon. And I just always thought like I I always loved meat last names, so I thought I would like to have a character with a meat last name. There's a lot of interesting forms of humor here, so tell us a little bit about your. There's some interesting the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of really snappy suburban dialogue. Yeah. And I, I think the the dominant theme of the humor is what I would call the truth hurts humor. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I do feel, you know, not that I would at all compare myself to these, um, these uh, sort of romantic comedies, sort of a la His Girl Friday, um, you know, Cary Grant sort of things. Those are my favorite um, uh, examples of sort of witty, but also kind of slightly wounding repartee <laughs> that um, that in this book, um, someone sort of said it had a bit of the mammoth in it. So maybe this book, the repartee is sort of Cary Grant by way of David Mamet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's always a, there's such a what's so wonderful about about watching those um, old movies like His Girl Friday they're just so witty, you know. People people seemed like they used to be so smart. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I I I uh, I liked to try to kind of um, encapsulate that that sort of rapid fire, funny and yet sort of hurtful truth quality. One thing I also enjoyed was there's a lot also a lot of very um, a lot of language in here that's both pithy and funny. At one point, you talk about uh, what you call a, a benifony? Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the benifony happens. Uh, Mary Veal has become an adult now, and she goes to see an old therapist of hers. And she can't believe like, there's this hideous carpet and this um, hideous wall color and this hideous um, couch. And even though she has all these other much more pressing things on her mind, like her mother's death, she finds herself sort of sidetracked and realizes that... Um, it is only 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 a decorator would have the confidence to put together a room that was so clashingly hideous, and she calls this a benifony, which is an epiphany about a seemingly banal subject. <laughs> and one other phrase that stri- that struck me too was that people the 
power of people enjoying hating one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, though that's very much the province of her two sisters, who are who are definitely like the Schadenfreude twins, you know. Um, so, so they they take great pleasure in um, in disliking people, and and it actually, it, by the end of the book, sort of becomes their way of of showing affection. Do you have sisters? No. You can tell I want some really badly. <laughs> this is my second book that deals with fairly um, fairly hostile sisters. And uh, yes, I clearly missed out. And I'm just trying to write my way into having that sibling I never had. You, you mentioned that this book is, is sometimes creepy, and it's often very creepy. Mm-hmm. But there's also a bit of humor and horror. When it, I, I loved your little uh, spree about the problems of cabins. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, it does seem, you know, the cabin is this very, um, uh, this place, um, getting back to, uh, what is it? Is it? It's not Night of the Living Dead. What's the one where evil the students, dead. the evil dead. Yeah, I feel like that's the ultimate cabin story, but it feels like that, the reason it's the ultimate cabin story is that it's like, well, of course, you go to a cabin and bad things happen, you know? I mean, inevitably, really bad things happen always in a cabin. It's happened to me, you know? I'm sure it's happened to you. Um, you know I'm, I'm really, I've, I've got my finger on a truth here. <laughs> yeah. My experience in a cabin was that I drank, we all had 7-Up. It was when 7-Up still came in green bottles. We all drank 7-Up, and I drank the green bottle of 7-Up and then saw the little furry things floating to the bottom. Oh. That was... <laughs> Wait, what were the, like, caterpillars? Uh, I don't know what they were. Wow. I didn't, never pursued it. And actually the whole... That, the Living Dead. Yeah, that Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> it was the Living Dead <laughs> yeah, in your 7-Up not. bottle. <laughs> <laughs> that whole uh, there's actually a name for that genre of uh, horror. It's called the spam in the cabin. Really? Yeah. The spam in the cabin. That's what they call it. Spam in the cabin. Oh wow! So whenever you have a whenever you have like people locked in an con- enclosed ah, space with right. a monster, it's right, right. the spam in the cabin movie. Wow, that's great. I'd like to talk to you too. Let's let's talk about how this novel is scary because it is scary, mm-hmm. but it's a novel of sexual terror. <laughs> which is, I think, that far sounds... more unsettling. <laughs> I'd much rather be ripped to shreds. Aren't I putting my finger on another truth, the, that sex is terrifying? Don't you think? I mean, just, that, no. Um, it's sort of like the cabin in the woods. Um, yeah, no, it's it's very much a, uh, it's like a, um, well, what's really weird is that there kind of is no sex in this book. No, but it's very frightening. Yeah, but it's more about the sort of stalkery side of sex, you know? I mean, this this way that people are kind of, um, they sort of stalk their prey in a way. And um, and this, uh, like, my intention with this book was to kind of um, invert the usual, like, who is stalking who formula, you know? So you have, like, in the... In the um, the girl and the man sections, which are the called the what might have happened sections, which is what um, I read from it initially. You know, she is she is taken away by this man in his car, but she kind of engineers it. So he at many times feels like he's the one who's been kidnapped and he's the one who's being sexually stalked. So each each member of the of the of the couple um, has their sort of equal moments of terror what I find interesting is this notion of the power of, of young young women, of, of teenage girls. They hold a lot of power over men because on one hand, we're, we're fascinated by them. Yeah. On the other hand, 
you can get into a whale of trouble right. if you're if you misbehave. And, yes. and I think that's the, the tension that you create and play on in this novel. Absolutely. And it's also a novel about what happens when you are given permission to do the thing that you know you shouldn't do or the thing that normally you are you are sort of culturally forbidden from doing. And yet when the person so when the girl essentially just she's she's flaunting to him the fact that you know she want you know she keeps teasing him like well aren't you going to kiss me well aren't you going to do this um and and uh and that for him creates so much more of a it's so much more terrifying to not have the safety net of well I shouldn't do this and I know she doesn't want me to do it because she's basically like taunting him to do it um, so it is it is like part of the terror, I guess, is about, well, what happens if you're you're suddenly given permission to do the thing you supposedly most want to do? And, and young women are, are often viewed as kind of icons of some kind of supernatural power of, of mm-hmm. the background of this novel is, is witches. And yes. you even bring in mention at one point that somebody is like a vampire. Right. So tell us a little bit about. How... And there are actual witches. Yes. The, the mom, uh, the mom, Mary Veal's mother is actually um, a relative, a sort of eighth generation descendant of uh, a girl who was convicted of being a witch in Salem and uh, was hanged. And the mother is quite obsessed with clearing her name since many of the Salem witches have been pardoned by by governors of Massachusetts in the past 20 or 30 years. Um, but, you know, for me, I actually grew up in In this way, the book, you know, I've sort of been saying that the book, to me, feels very autobiographical. I mean, obviously, I never engineered my own abduction. Is it's, that obvious? So uh, Obviously. <laughs> okay. So far as you know. <laughs> so far as I know. <laughs> so far as my press materials. They didn't mention that, did they? No. Um, but, uh, but she, uh, but to me, you know, having grown up in, I didn't grow up around Boston, but I grew up in Portland, Maine, which isn't too far away. And I actually grew up next to a cemetery. I do feel like as a sort of New England girl who's growing up with this kind of Protestant history and this this sort of Puritan, I mean, not Protestant, Puritanical kind of um, background that you feel very strongly that that kind of that witch story you know um you feel very much that this is a place where if you were a young girl and you stepped out of line or you were seen to be in any way like a seductress or because a lot of the witches they now think um there are some people who speculate that they were kind of sexually wanton um there's there is a sort of tinge of sexuality to those women who were convicted of being witches. Um, anyway, so it seems to translate very directly in a way to my experience as an adolescent in New England growing up to a cem- next to a cemetery, you know, in the sense that, you know, well, if you step out of line, they might hang you here. <laughs> that was the message I got as a teenager. Well, I... Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the message all of you teenagers should be getting. That's right. Yes. I, I have two teenage sons. There so you go. There step you go. out of line. Yeah. Bang, they're Just gone. show them the gallows. Show you know? them the gallows. That works. Actually, it doesn't work at all no. whatsoever now. No, I know. No. They're not scared of those things anymore, are no. they? No. Yeah. No. They've hung so many people, you know, on their video games. <laughs> yeah, it, seems, it seems like a very, you know, painless fate to encounter. <laughs> well, compared to what's out there, it actually is. I guess that's true. Yeah. Now, you've written uh, a, a bit about young women 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about some of your preoccupations and, and where this book lands in the spectrum of those preoccupations. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's funny because I feel like my preoccupation, actually, which I'm hoping I have shaken, though I don't know for a fact that I have, is with, um, I mean, yes, my main characters and my protagonists do tend to be women. Um, but uh, especially the last two books, I've been very obsessed with the sort of intersection of confession and storytelling or like or or therapy really and storytelling and the way that um, to me therapy kind of feels like our oral mode of storytelling these are the stories we tell ourselves but we really only tell ourselves now and frequently we are the stars of these stories we are the protagonists we are we are the heroes that have to overcome the lion with our sword and whatever you know um, so there is this strange kind of self mythology um, that arises from this act of storytelling about yourself. Um, and it's done in the service, supposedly, of, of coming up with some better understanding of who you are. And I think that it does help you understand who you are, but I also just sort of wonder sometimes like, how much it has any real connection to anything truthful that happened to you or, or if this is just a way when we talk about our past to sort of formulate it into this neat narrative that we can present to people when we meet them, you know? Like, this is who I am. Let me tell you my story, you know? With, with the therapist, we all become Scheherazade. We all become Scheherazade, exactly. Have you, let me ask you, have you yes. ever been in therapy? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, I mean, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of my experiences in therapy. I mean, I, I went to therapy. Um, I, I mean, I was always fascinated with the idea of going to therapy uh, since I was very young. I just thought it sounded like the coolest thing you could ever do. And possibly part of the reason. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I was dying to go to therapy. And I just I came from a family where that was just not going to happen. You know, I mean, you did not go to therapy if you were you know, a teenager in my household and, and in New England. And, you know, this was the 80s. Most people didn't go to therapy in the 80s, certainly not in New England. Um, and uh, it definitely had a stigma attached to it, I think. And so um, I just thought, you know, and I've even when I was that, when I was younger, I thought, well, what was so appealing to me is that you could go and you could and you could just lie, you know? I mean, you could say anything to these <laughs> doctors and what would they know, you know? They would sort of have to take you seriously and then they would help you kind of cobble together this whole kind of alternate person, you know, that you'd, that you'd presented to them. It would be kind of like validated by the doctor, you know? <laughs> so I always wanted to go. And then I did finally end up going and not, you know, and I had a whole range of different experiences. I didn't go until I was in grad school and I had health insurance, basically. It was the first time I, I, I was able to satisfy this curiosity of mine. Um, and I had every, you know, I just, I feel like I had all measure of types, you know? I had some therapists that seemed... Um, really helpful, and then other ones that just seemed so totally nuts to me, you know, uh, and and really had these strange agendas that they were trying to push on me. And one of them actually said to me after having known me for really, I mean, less than a whole session. This happened within the first session. Suggested to me that I had been sexually abused when I was younger, and that I didn't remember, you know, that I I didn't remember it, you know. And it it was just so shocking, you know. I was like, you know, and then that that becomes the sort of thing where you can't really say, "No, I wasn't sexually." No one believes you when you say that, <laughs> you know. It it is a she doth protest too much moment, you know. And but I mean, what what I am sort of playing around with in this novel is that sort of the weird way. I mean, again, to get back to the idea of being given permission to do something, 
you know, this this doctor gave me permission to create a whole sort of victim profile for myself. Sure, you could have just gone right And it ahead. was actually kind of tempting, you know? I mean, it was really kind of tempting. It was but it was tempting not from a from a perspective of, "Oh, okay, I'm going to go and lie to this guy." It was actually tempting from a, "Well, I wonder if that did happen to me." You know? I mean, it's so culturally pervasive for so long, I think, was this notion that something terrible could have happened to us and we actually would have completely forgotten about it. That I was willing to entertain for 2 seconds that this guy actually did know something about me that I didn't know about myself. And in a strange way, it felt kind of um it, it felt like uh it it was like this invitation kind of to create this whole past for myself. It was tempting not to take it. I mean, it was tempting to take, you know? <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Now, did you do much research into um, the the actual profession of therapy, and especially because this book does involve amnesia? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, I have done a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of, reach, of reading. Um, uh, you know, obviously Freud, and then another person who I adore reading um, is Adam Phillips. He's... Um, uh, he writes, uh, he's English and he writes, um, uh, a lot of literary criticism, but also writes a lot of books, a lot of sort of psychoanalytically minded kind of essayistic books, basically psychoanalytic essays is what he does. And he's fascinating. And he's somebody who, um, is, is very much, um, of the perspective that Freud, uh, was kind of mislabeled as a doctor or as a scientist, and in fact, he was an artist. And we should re-conceive of his contributions to the world um, as artistic contributions. This is really that's a that's an interesting notion, and it's interesting too that Freud is starting to come back into yeah. vogue after being so far, you know, discarded and and tried to crush him in a little corner and put him away. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, because he used to be taught, you know, he was in medical schools. I mean, it used to be if you went to medical school, you know, your, you know, the psychology portion of your of your training, you read Freud, you know, that that was how we understood, you know, the human subconscious. And um, starting really in the 80s, it seems his reputation became more and more and more chipped away at. And now um, they don't read Freud anymore in medical school. Um, At least the medical students I've talked to recently, he's 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 not on the roster any longer, you know. But yes, I think that once you, you know, he and his science was really shoddy, you know, I mean, you read um, his Dora case study now, I mean, you read it, um, you know, from this distance, it's sort of unimaginable that anybody could have actually viewed that as a case study. The way he is manipulating the information that she's given him is well, really so apparent, you know? And yet that was that was science for a while, you know? <laughs> well, there's a, a famous writer, Charles Fort, who who, uh-huh. who believes that, he, he says that science is, has its fashions just as everything else Absolutely. does. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. And I think what's really great about Freud is that maybe he he will he I think he will come back into fashion sort of as a as a literary figure rather than as a scientist. You mentioned the Dora case and it bears uh some matter of importance in the novel. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, um the uh Mary Veal 
when she returns from um, her engineered abduction, um, she starts to essentially plagiarize the Dora case slowly to her therapist. So she starts giving him all these little clues, essentially, um, that she's maybe screwing around with him a little bit. And he never picks up on this, but another therapist does. So she is... um, uh, you know, you know, and, and this is why the other therapist says, "Well, don't you think that it's very notable um, that she is uh, trying to speak in the voice of a girl whose abuse was um, purposefully overlooked by her doctor?" And anyway, so this, this, the fact that she's using Dora then becomes a way for all these other doctors to interpret her story in a different way. And let's talk a little bit about amnesia. You you go beyond the head bonk amnesia that we see in television. Yes. And it interests me that um, you list uh, Jonathan Lethem. Yes. As a oh, reader yes. in this book. Yes. And he's a man who wrote he's, a... He's Mr. Amnesia. He wrote a, yeah, Amnesia Moon and a whole yes. anthology on yes. amnesia. Exactly. Well, of course, in this case, all the amnesia is faked. <laughs> no one actually has amnesia. <laughs> but again, I mean, the fact that people are faking amnesia... Um, It'll, it, it sort of, again, it, it creates this opportunity or it gives the people there with a certain amount of permission to, um, to sort of be creative. You know, if you think you're with somebody who doesn't know who they are, how does that change the way you behave toward them? Um, and so the, the girl actually speculates, um, the, the man who abducts her, he's pretending to have amnesia. And he tells her that his wife, his ex-wife rather, has, has helped him fill in all the gaps. And she speculates that, in fact, his ex-wife has told him all these lies about himself because wouldn't that be so tempting? If someone with amnesia came to you and said, can you help me remember who I am, you know, and if you're like, well, you are allergic to shrimp and you really love to play golf, and you know, whatever you you. So, again, it's like the book is just all these um, all these opportunities for people to, in a way, um, to tell a story and to either sort of do it responsibly or do it irresponsibly. You have a lot of people creating themselves through narratives, and Mm -hmm. stories are are really integral. It's a central part of this book. Let's talk a little bit about the back up and talk a little bit about the construction because there's Mm -hmm. there's three. It's a fascinating novel. On one hand, it's a a quick and easy read, and and you could really classify it as just a a thriller with a lot of humor and and a toe-tapping pace that you slice up time in a way that's really interesting. But there's also a lot of uh, interesting postmodern aspects to this as well. It reminds me uh, a bit of uh, Jennifer Egan's work in Mm -hmm. the way that you integrate some stuff that's, that's very sophisticated into a, a narrative and a novel that's very accessible. Well, it's funny that my, you know, and, and Jenny Egan's a perfect person to bring up. Um, the, the book that I was most con- consciously uh, ripping off, let's just say, <laughs> <laughs> was uh, Tim O'Brien's In the Lake of the Woods, which is one of my favorite books of all time. And, and I feel like when, when um, you're a reader... I mean, when you're a writer reading books, you're reading both for your own reading pleasure, but then you're also sort of reading, you're reading as a thief, you know? I feel like I'm always reading as a, as a potential thief. And I remember when I read that book, I thought, I'm going to steal this, you know? Not just t- to be, um, because I, I thought this is a reading experience that I would love to recreate for other people, this exact experience that that he gave me. And um, and essentially, it is that, that sort of, a book that's working on two levels where it could just be read kind of as a straight thriller. 
which is how it's funny. My my brother, who I think because he's my brother, is congenitally um, congenitally, uh, um, you know, uh, forced to uh, to hate literary fiction. He will say. Um, you know, he'd say, I'd say, well, you don't really hate literary fiction. You like In the Lake of the Woods, and The Lake of the Woods is one of his favorite books. He's like, yes, but that's not literary fiction. <laughs> so in a way, I felt like I wanted to write a book that would, like, for those people who think they hate literary fiction, they would like it because it, it is sort of like a, a page-turning kind of inexorable pull of a plot kind of experience when you read it. But then for people who want something else, um, in addition to that, there are these other ways that you can sort of read it and enjoy it, too. Well, now there are three different portions to this book, and, and I'd like you to tell us about each of the three different yes. parts of the narrative because they interlock very nicely. It's a beautifully constructed work. And, and did you write it all? Did you write each part separately? Yeah. Or well, I did write order? I wrote it in order, sequentially, each part separately. Um, essentially, it's three sections. So the first section is called What Might Have Happened, and that is um, uh, a, a narrative that that is possibly what occurred while the girl was disappeared when when she um um faked her abduction and, and you eventually learn that that is essentially what happened um and then the second one is 14 years in the future mary veal has come back for her mother's funeral and she is sort of face to face um with the fact that she's been on the west coast for many years and she's now confronted with the fact that um she really has not been able to um get past this moment in her life that she really is this kind of arrested adult because of her inability to have any um, closure over this event. And and when she goes home, she's really confronted by the fact that everybody else also um, sort of holds her and she's kind of like frozen in time in a way. And then the, the third section is um, back in 1986 when Mary has returned and it's told from the point of view of her doctor and he is um, you get to sort of watch how he is being manipulated by her even though he's not really aware of it but then you also see him manipulating her so anyways and the way I wrote it is I basically was able to write about two-thirds of it and then I I thought oh god I I need to make a chart (laughs) so so I made a chart for myself just to sort of see like how everything was sort of locking in place and and how it was how it was like what what you know what what should come next so tell us a little bit one about one of the things that you talk about is that the therapist and the patient the doc, doctor hammer and mary veal mm-hmm. they play games it's like it's it's very much a a a, mat, a chess match did you actually look at chess matches and pattern their repartee after chess matches Gosh. and they actually play games within the 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 sessions and I'm wondering how you came up with those. And I know that you're you're interested in math, and I'm wondering if there, mm. is there any game theory in this? You know, no. I mean, my all of my interests are are. Um, uh, yeah, I actually I I don't even know how to play chess, if you can believe that. I only know how to read books about chess, not even actual chess books, but novels about chess. It's funny because I had just I had been reading like The Defense by Nabokov and. Um, the Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis. And anyways, and what's sort of great about those books is that you can 
inconceivably you can actually read and enjoy a chess book without knowing how to play chess. <laughs> Meaning you can also write a book that seems chess-like without knowing about chess, I guess. Um, but no, I did sort of um, the games that I came up with that they play with each other. In a way, it is a it is a um, it is a uh, continuation of a lot of the games um, that people played with each other in my second book, The Effect of Living Backwards on an Airplane. There were a lot of these um, sort of moral dilemma games that people had to play. And I guess I, I love, I, I like those um, moments where just for myself, I think, well, what if someone gave me this choice? I like to think of these really hard choices. If someone gave you a choice, how would you respond to that? And um, since it's always... Um, uh, you don't really usually get to make those choices in your own life. You can make your fictional characters make those choices instead. Make them squirm. <laughs> when you write about this novel, it has a lot a theme. It's a, a theme, I guess, uh, of invisibility. Mm -hmm. a and one of the... You only mention it once, but it's, I think it's a really important mention, is you mention Anne Frank. Yes. Yes. And uh, the, the ultimate invisible young girl. It's true. It's true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I again, what's sort of interesting about um, Mary Veal is that all her attempts to make herself less visible, less invisible, only um, conscript her to invisibility for her whole entire life. It's sort of like the more she fights against it, the more she just ensures that that is her fate. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you know, and, and she, you know, the, the, the most sort of telling sign of, of her invisibility is that she can't get the uh, garage light to turn on. It's one of those motion sensor garage lights. She can never get it to turn on. <laughs> she, she's also between the two siblings, isn't mm -hmm. she? She's the middle, yes. So that makes her, of course, invisible in most the, within prone. the family. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, and they are, her, the sisters are two very big personality types, and so she's sort of just been lost in this family all along. And, um, yeah, so it's her attempt to kind of... Also, it's her attempt to sort of be, you know... It, it, and this is Dr. Hammer. Her doctor comes up with a theory that he writes a book about um, that Mary ends up starring in, and he calls it hyper-radiance, and he sees it actually as a creative act, that this is all of these lies, all of this sort of deception is to be seen as sort of the ultimate creative act. So, so you came up with this this idea of hyperradiance. I love this idea. Tell us a little, explain yes. this a little more in detail. And you conceived of this yourself? Yes. Oh, that's yes. great, boy. I guess uh, psychology is the realm of literature. It is the realm of literature. Or maybe I should just be a psychologist. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm in the wrong. I'm in the wrong business here. Yes, hyperradiance is what um, Dr. Hammer comes up with, and it is. Um, he he uses sort of the witches as his jumping off point. Um, that it are these um, girls who are sexually constrained by their families, by the culture they're in, they end up creating these lies. Um, and so the witches, uh, in fact, kind of the so-called witches, the girls who were possessed, basically, that, that that possession was almost like a form of abduction, that they um, were abducted by these um, by the devil, you know, um, and since nowadays or nowadays in the 80s, that that would be less believable. You couldn't really, you know, although actually you never know. People probably would believe that these days. Right. You could find someone to believe oh, anything, sure. but more believable and more sort of um, working on on uh, the the cultural terrors that were um, that were most kind of at the surface in the 80s. 
he was saying that these hyperradiant girls will, will literally abduct themselves, i.e. they fake their abduction. So yeah, and so that's their, their way of sort of dealing with the, the sexual tension and that it's to be seen as this creative act. He sees it as this sort of very feminist. He sees himself as a feminist, Dr. Hammer. Clearly he is one. <laughs> Story, as I was saying earlier, play, plays a really important part. Is There's all sorts of different you look at story, this whole book is about the way we tell stories, the way we create ourselves through stories, the way stories undergo permutations. And I, one of the things I found really interesting was the different permutations of stories, the, the way a, a Rashomon-style mm-hmm. retelling a, a, of the facts from various points of view so that they almost seems like it's not the same story at all. Yeah. Well, and what's sort of interesting about this is, again, you know, it's it's essentially she when she returns from her abduction— she fakes having amnesia. So she essentially has no story. So she is saying to the doctor, give me a story. Like she essentially allows him to give her a story. And he does. And so in a way, it's sort of much to his regret. (laughs) And then when the um, then when that story is sort of taken over by yet another therapist, she's reinterpreting the story um, that the therapist has given to Mary. You know, in a way, it's sort of um, it's sort of Rashomon like, but it's also it's like instead of there being an actual event at the center, the there is nothing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The story itself is invisible. Yes, the story is invisible. There we go. <laughs> there we go. When you tell the story, one of the things that, that I really like, and, and this is something I think reflective of, of, of a lot of postmodern literature, we seem, fiction seems to have taken on a lot of the tools and, and the techniques of uh, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the doctor's notes are essentially posited to the reader as nonfiction. Yes. And tell us a little yes. bit about using telling a fictional story through nonfiction. Yeah. Well, I mean, another another way that I, I was interested in sort of tweaking that boundary is that um, Mary becomes, though she is a fictional character, she becomes the subject in the novel of a nonfiction book, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so in a sense, um, you know, there it, it is that um, it's like playing with that allure, I guess, um, that that nonfiction has. You know, it's like the reason that James Fry decided it's more powerful to call it a memoir than a novel. You know, it's like it, it has that sort of um, that veneer of based on a true story. You know, <laughs> suddenly you have this slightly different. Um, uh, investment in it, you know, and so I liked the idea of playing around with the fact that within the book, that that fictional characters would have these sort of nonfiction personas <laughs> that would, and they would become these own like celebrities within the book because they were nonfiction um, personas. But you also too at the prose level, in mm-hmm. many ways, it's written. There's this is a absolutely the least flowery book about adolescent girls I think you're likely to find mm. and, and you back off there's no flowery prose in this in this puppy it, it, it's like I say it reminds me very much of of the therapist's notes and and the documentary it's very you strip away a lot of the affect yeah yeah I mean I, I think it's um you know it obviously has become as you say a very postmodern kind of maneuver to adopt that kind of scientific language in fiction um, and, uh, you know, I don't think I could write a whole book like that, but I liked the idea of, especially because there are so many story elements, um, in the book where, um, where, 
you know, it's like the in the what might have happened chapters. It has this very kind of dreamy, un, you know, kind of um, everything's possible, kind of ungrounded um, sense to it that it, it felt like it needed to be anchored with this much more um, like here are the facts, people. I'm a doctor. I'm going to tell you the facts. When you wrote this book, you, one thing you used a phrase I really like. Uh, you were trying to recreate the reading experience mm-hmm. of uh, the Tim O'Brien book, and, and I, I really like that the idea. This uh, idea of the the reading experience, and and the reading experience of this book is is very strange. It's it is somewhat dreamy, but it's also very fairly tense and very pacey too. So tell us a little bit about the way and the way you achieve the page turning quality is by slicing up time. Yeah. And he, tell us a little bit about it. And even when your characters feels that at one point time collapses and all of a sudden he's presented with a moment to either redeem his, himself or as what more likely happens is to make the same mistake twice. Right. Which we are good at. Yes. We're so very good at that, aren't we? Um, yeah. I mean, I, again, I sort of saw it, you know, to reduce it to numbers, I guess, because all plots can be reduced to numbers, right? I sort of saw each section as... You would get five steps forward, but then you'd be pulled two steps backward, you know, so that you would have this kind of forward motion that each section would um, take up where the other section left off and pull you forward in terms of your understanding of what's happening, even though you're going back and forth in time, um, you know, between these two, the the present day, which is 1999, and then the 80s, basically. Um, but that, uh, as with the Tim O'Brien book, it's almost like the more information you have, you realize um, that more information isn't necessarily uh, the way to answer all your questions or that the questions you have are not going to be satisfied just by getting information. You know, that the, that there are emotional questions and there are intellectual questions and that, um, you know, the novelist can give you all of the information of the plot. This is what happened, you know, but they're not going to make up their mind for you in terms of um, what the emotional ramifications of that well, it's it's one thing to know what happened. We know very right off the bat what happened. Right. The, the tension is to find out why it happened yes. and, and how it felt yes. to have it happen to the characters. Exactly. And then also, what is the fallout of having it happen? You know, so you get to see people both like as it's happening and how it felt, and then many years later, the sort of the like still kind of active reverberations of that event. One thing I, I noticed in this book, and it's kind of unusual, your previous book, of, of course, which is about a, a, the, the hijacking, mm-hmm. you finished that two weeks before 9-11. Yes. <laughs> uh, timing is impeccable. Timing is impeccable. <laughs> um, it's like the many people I knew who finished their spy thrillers, you know, shortly after the fall of the, <laughs> the Soviet Union. <laughs> exactly. Here's a book that doesn't really bring that up. It doesn't, although it's funny you should say that because, you know, when I was, um, when I, uh, you know, another, uh, the thing that sort of got me started on this book um, was, uh, it was right around the time that Elizabeth Smart disappeared. And it seemed to me, and this could have just been me, but I, I suddenly felt as though there were all these girls disappearing all over the place. It suddenly felt like there was this spate of kind of white upper middle class girls disappearing all over the place. And um, and I had this um, idea, which ended up being obviously the thing that kicked off this book, um, the idea being like it seems the cultural moment 
for some young girl who wants some attention to fake her abduction because she'd be guaranteed this sort of nationwide press coverage. And um, and uh, and so that's kind of what got me going on this. And then sure enough, about halfway through, there actually was a college student who faked her abduction. Um, and they had her on tape, like on, on like, you know, the, the video feed in the store buying the masking tape that she would then tape herself <laughs> up with. <laughs> Oops. You know, so it really does come back to that, you know, oft quoted Philip Roth um, statement about how, you know, it's like you, I, I will say it far less eloquently, but essentially, you know, like you will always be foiled by reality if you're a fiction writer. You know, you, you just can't beat it to the punch. There's a great phrase in this book that you use a couple times. I'd like you to talk about it. How the overall whiteness of the world is threatened. Yes. <laughs> well, that very much comes down to the whole sort of Puritan New England purity issue um, that, uh, you know, this girl, this, you know, this white girl has been abducted from her very white suburb and um, and how this uh, this sort of threatens the whole sort of fabric of the place, you know, and that this girl then who has had this sort of unknown thing happen to her would be reinserted into the suburb um, without people being able to kind of say for certain, okay, this is what happened to her and we are going to kind of um, fence off the contagion, you know? Um, so that's essentially uh, where it was coming from. And Well, then there's the perception of the mother, too, who I believe thinks that, that she'd rather have her daughter have been raped than be a liar. Yeah. No, she'd rather she were a liar than, than been be raped. raped. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You know, there's that sort of notion of... Um, uh, you know, uh, the sort of there's a there's a sort of regenerative notion um, uh, about you know your personality, whereas um, it doesn't seem like you can be. Uh, there's nothing regenerative about you can't become a virgin again. Basically, <laughs> you know? once, once the fabric is stained, the fabric is stained. <laughs> exactly. And, and yes. I I'd like to talk a little bit about your work with the Believer. Mm -hmm. What led you to to found this when when you co-founded it with with Vendela Vida and Ed Park, and um, and and Andrew Leland is now actually speaking of the fabric that holds it all together, the unstained fabric. <laughs> Andrew Leland, um, yes, uh, I would say um, we were just we were just very irritated. That's what it was. We were irritated um, by the way books were getting talked about. It just seemed um, that. Uh, there was um, a sort of ever-decreasing amount of print real estate afforded to book reviews. And I sort of see it as a, as a consequence of this. Um, you know, you forget book reviewers are writers too, right? I mean, they want people to read what they've written. I've reviewed books. I want people to read my reviews. Um, when you have a lot of space to work within, um, you can say something, you can develop a very insightful argument, you can make a lot of insightful points. If you don't have very much space to work within, um, the way to sort of most easily get attention is is to be very incendiary. And, some, and that incendiary quality was then um, starting to turn um, ever more nasty, and it was, um, there were a lot of these like personal attacks it seemed on actual authors passing as criticism. So um, 
so that was sort of what we were. It, it seemed as though suddenly there was really a space in the culture to introduce a magazine that had space to talk about books. And then also, you know, it seemed to me that the fact that these the, the book coverage was so tiny, there was no way to talk about how these books um, were interacting with the greater culture or how they were products of the greater culture, not just the products of other books, um, and that they had a sort of literary heritage, but they had a cultural heritage too. And that, to me, was, was just reinforcing this notion that books were becoming irrelevant. And so we wanted to um, give people the space to talk about books in a way that showed how interconnected they really are. Books, it, it's true. Books have been getting a lot less coverage. I, I, I've written book reviews, and now I'm I'm looking at somebody asking me to review a book in 250 words, and I'm just thinking, this well, is a 500-page book. Are you yeah. out of your mind? Yeah, and it's not a review then. I mean, you know, I guess maybe we have to stop calling them reviews because they're not. A, that's not a review at that no, point. No. I mean, that's really just a plot summary. Like, could you summarize this book for me in 250 words, you yeah, know? No, I, I, I eschew plot summaries. I can't yes, stand it. But... <laughs> But, it, well, it, it's interesting, too, because I, I find one of the things about books I find really interesting is that they really do, if you look at books, they really are like the the stones that rise above the surface of the waters of our culture. And, and you can see that they're, they'll provide you with a path across the river. I hope they do. Um, you know, I, I think that they... Uh, or the, a better way to dive in and drown. There we go. Yes. <laughs> the sirens tempting you to crash your boat on the rocks of books. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I do as much as people have been sort of, you know, um, eulogizing books now for, I don't know, I feel like since I started writing, you know. And yes, possibly there are fewer people reading. And yes, people have less time to read. Yes, 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 yes. Um, but I almost think, and, and, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I do feel that there that people are, are having a little bit of, a, of an information hangover suddenly, you know, that there is so much um, information coming at you and that you s you do start to realize after a while that there's a difference between information and reading. You know, just because what you read online is in the form of words, it doesn't necessarily mean you're having a reading experience. You're having an information experience. That's you an know? interesting distinction. Yeah. And so I think, I think that you, um, you know, I feel for myself, I, you know, I can't spend too much time having information experiences. I suddenly then want to have something more escapist, you know, but that is also at the same time, you know, acting as that crucial rock across the water, you know. Well, there's a the Polish writer, uh, science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem mm -hmm. wrote a book of um, review, perfect reviews of non-existent books. And one of the books he reviewed was called Pericolipsis. And he has this, he develops this notion you talk about. It, basically, the pericolypse is the apocalypse that has already come to pass, only we haven't noticed it in the general haste. And the idea is, is that there are so many books being published, there's so much information coming out, that if there are seven books that could save the world, you couldn't find them underneath all the garbage that's out there. It's like trying to find seven specific grains of sand in the Sahara. Yeah, yeah. And, and so he, his, the author of the book he was reviewing, Pericolipsis, per, uh, came up with this uh, system of paying authors not to write. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and it seems that a really great idea. It, it seems that we have we are in the midst of the pericalypse right now. It has come to pass, and we and that makes book reviewing even more important. Absolutely, absolutely. No, you know, I think I think that um, you know, I was recently talking to um, a independent bookstore owner in Ann Arbor, this uh, guy, very interesting guy named Ray McDaniel. And he was telling me how even the act of selling a book, you know, it used to be he could just be like, I love this book, buy it. And they would buy it. His customers would buy it. But that now he will have people ask him, they're much more skeptical readers, and they will say to him before they buy it, well, what kind of book is it? And Ray just would, what, what, how do you answer that question? What kind of book is it? <laughs> you know, but, but it does seem that it is, um, that it has become the ever trickier task, I guess, of people who edit magazines, um, as I do with The Believer, or um, people who are writing book reviews. I know that this is something, um, the National Book Critics Circle, that's a, a really very active, um, uh, and actively thinking bunch about how best to kind of um, get people to read, you know, like how, how do you sort of mix your job as a critic with also sort of being this envoy in a way, you know, <laughs> you are you are the ambassador to um, to a reading experience. And how do you get people how do you get people to take that leap, you know, um, well, it's important that people understand that reading offers an experience that is completely unique and from any other art form because it involves so much effort on the part of the percipient. Um, most other art forms, you can just lay there yeah. and they'll wash over you and that's about it. And, and even though the, you can, they can be very involving, movies, mm -hmm. music, that can all be very involving. Look at the painting. It's you know beautiful. It's all uh, involving. But it doesn't involve like sitting there and trying to process uh, the information. And, and that's a, a fundamentally different thing. And I think different things happen in your brain mm -hmm. as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what's so interesting about, about books, too, is that, you know, you think about it, if you think about a book that you've read, like if you think about Lolita, for example, since most people have read or many people who are listening to this have probably read Lolita, and you think about, like, what your picture is of like what she looks like, what he looks like, what the mom looks like. You know, this is assuming that your your imagination hasn't been overridden, overwritten by um, the movies, you know. But, I mean, mine hasn't been. You know, I read that book and I have my very, and I remember what her house looks like. You know, you never forget these things. You've created this for yourself. You have actually um, created this whole world. There's so much that you get to add. And yet every single person who reads that book is having a different visual association in their head that they came up with themselves. And, you know, that just doesn't happen when you watch a movie. I, it, it's true that, that, and you talk about this in, in this book, too, that books create a place you can go. They create the equivalence of a, of a memory. So mm -hmm. there's... Exactly. The, it the, is. It's like a memory. I have a memory of Lowe's house, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. It's a place... Uh, which, which I'm actually less apt to forget than some things that actually happened to me. <laughs> well, well, that's true. The, the books create... A, a great book complete create a place that you can go back and visit again and again in your memory as if it were a memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really pretty incredible... It's an incredible thing, you know? Um, you know, I guess the real question is, like, is it really a muscle that you have to exercise if you don't exercise it? You know, when you sort of say that it, it requires a lot more effort to read, you know, 
I, I, I certainly feel that depending on the book, it can feel more effortful. Um, but generally speaking, I actually find it less effortful for me to read a book than it is for me to watch a movie. Um, like when I'm going to go relax at the end of a long day's work, mm-hmm. I will either watch Project Runway or I will read a novel. <laughs> <laughs> but movies are too hard for me. We'll leave it with that dichotomy. <laughs> We've been speaking with Heidi Julevitz. Her new novel is The Uses of Enchantment. Thank you for joining me, Thank Heidi. Thank you so much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.